0: Welcome to the Search for Truth podcast, where we take a look at the Word of God and its authentic application to our lives. I'm Pastor Young, and in our daily Bible studies, we will ask the question What is truth? Where do I fit in the story? And what is God saying to the church? So grab a Bible and enjoy. Word up! everybody. Uh, Pastor Young here. Welcome to another Search for Truth Bible study. Uh, Whether you're tuning in on uh, YouTube or whether you're uh, listening to this via podcast, I want to just take a moment to thank you so much uh, for listening, for watching. Thank you for sharing. And uh, I pray that these videos and podcasts have blessed you. And uh, let's jump into the word today. So we're going to pick up from 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, and uh, I, I, want, I want you to remember to filter everything today through kind of the overarching theme um, of, of some things that I've been bringing uh, in past studies. What I mean by this is that the stories that Happen within first Samuel are a representation of the mindset of the people, okay? Uh, what happens, uh, and, and we see this today as well, by the way, what happens from story to story, um, what develops physically is nothing more than an outward representation of what is happening inwardly within the people of Israel, okay? The example that I want to bring forth today, uh, I I mentioned this previously, but today we're going to continue this pattern, um, that the people approach Samuel and they say, make us a king so that we can be like every other nation. They say we want to be led of the flesh or by the flesh rather than to be led by the Spirit. And so, uh, as I've mentioned before, God gives them a king, Saul, that is the embodiment, the physical representation of what is happening within them spiritually. God gives them a king that does exactly what they asked for, and that is a king that will be led by the flesh, a king that will be led by instinct, a king that will be led by uh, thought rather than the direction of of God now so what this does is this sets up this uh, this great battle you know um, and and all throughout 1 Samuel and really through 2 Samuel and honestly you could make this argument for the entire Bible that the whole thing is just a, is just a great story about the battle between carnality and spirituality. The Bible says that the carnal mind is enmity with God. That means it is opposed to the ways of God. That that the carnal mind, the, the ways of the flesh, uh, the 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 ways of your instincts, the ways that, the ways of 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 my endeavors, uh, my agenda, uh, my persona, the preservation of my uh, of of my place, of my reputation. Um, and, and what we see is we either have people in these, in these stories who they will fall on one side of the spectrum. You have people like Saul that no matter what he did, he could not put aside his agenda. He could not put aside what he thought was best. Um, I've, I've said this many times. You cannot determine your level of discipleship if what you perceive God is asking you to do is what you already wanted to do, your discipleship is really established. Whenever what God asks you to do is something that you don't want to do, uh, I I I tell folks this in Bible study that uh, you know everybody everybody loves their pastor uh, and and everybody says their submitted to the leadership of their pastor. They say all of these things, but you can't really say that as long as everything I preach and teach you already thought. You can't say that as long as whatever it is that I deliver to you, you are going to do that anyways. But the moment that I say something that you don't like, the moment that I teach or preach something that is in the Word, of course, but that it goes against your physical instinct. That is whenever your discipleship is really established. Moreover, when the Word says things to us that we already feel is right or that we already subscribe to in our ideology, we cannot say within ourselves that we are fully committed to the Word. It is only Whenever the word confronts us, confronts our fleshly instinct, confronts our carnal mind, you see. So that's that's why we have things like be uh, be not conformed to this world. Don't don't uh, don't subscribe to the thinking and the ideology that everybody else has, but rather be ye transformed, right? until the renewing of your mind let this mind that was in Christ Jesus let it be also in you these are these are scriptures that we know very well but the question is do we live these scriptures and so if i'm living these scriptures i must have fruit that shows that i'm living these scriptures and the fruit does not make itself apparent until my will Is confronted by God's will until my will um, okay like like I said we got people that fall on the two ends of the spectrum you know the 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 carnal spiritual spectrum Um, we have King Saul like I mentioned you also have people like John the Baptist right John the Baptist fell far way over on the other end of the scale the good part the 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 place that we want to be what was the fruit though you can't just say, well, he was a good dude. I'm sure he was spiritual. No, you have to look at the fruit of his ministry, the fruit of what he said, the fruit of what he did, even. And the one of the greatest places uh, that proves where John the Baptist falls in this in that spectrum is he says, I must decrease that he might increase. Now, that that means a lot of different things. We've we've taken that. To, to mean uh, actually a, a lot of different things. And, and uh, yes, it, it does mean, it does mean my will has got to decrease so that His will can increase. That, it does mean that. It does mean that. It does mean that, you know, my desires must decrease so that His desires in my life might increase. It does mean that. However, I would submit to you that John the Baptist is saying even more than that. You got to realize that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, he had audiences like you would not believe. Numbers, droves of people would come out to the wilderness to hear this crazy man preach, wrapped in camel skins, he's got locust legs tangled up in his beard and and wild honey probably slapped up on his you know, some of y'all look like that in quarantine. You, 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 you've been raiding the pantry so much. You got, you got honey all up in your eyebrows, you know, and you got just, you, you stink. You, you don't smell good. I smell you from here. You know, you, you need to get out of the house. You, you need to take a bath, baby. And John the Baptist was like that. He was, I mean, by, by, all, by all measurements of carnality, by all measurements of the physical scale we would say that John the Baptist did not look like much. He, I mean, for Pete's sake, man, I mean, get a barber, you know. Uh, John the Baptist was not, was not very approachable. He wasn't very palatable, you see. But yet he had all these followers. He had all of. John the Baptist had more disciples than you could shake a stick at. John the Baptist had had tons and tons and tons of people that would that would flock out to the wilderness, endure the heat of the sun, and hear this wild man scream at them and tell them, everything you're doing is wrong. Now, m- whenever they approached him, they had one main question. Are you the Messiah? Or are you one of the other prophets? Are you... Are you Elijah? You see, the, the, the scripture said that he would send his forerunner in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus later confirms. He says, I sent Elijah already and you killed him. And then the scripture says, and that which he said was John the Baptist. So, I mean, he, hey, he was the forerunner. But, but John the Baptist said, I'm not him. It's not me. I'm not even worthy to latch his sandals He that comes after me is preferred before me. He says, says, I'm I'm a nobody. You see, whenever he said, I must decrease that he might increase. This is the spirit of somebody that can be used of God. And that is this. It's more than just my will must decrease so his will might increase. Because we have to say that's kind of vague. Really, really, that's vague. We, we have to say it's more than just my thoughts must decrease so that his thoughts might increase or my my ways must decrease so his ways can increase. All of those things are very vague. We then have to look at what is the actual fruit that you can point towards to say this is proof. This is evidence that my will has now decreased. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm telling you that you need to be after. And so for John the Baptist, him saying, I must decrease. It's more than just the influence. It's more than just the the will, the desires. Whenever he said, I must decrease, John the Baptist was literally saying, I have too many people following me. I have too many people that that. Are hanging on my every word. I have too many people that, that I have become their access point whenever Christ is intended to be the mediator, when He's intended to be the advocate, when I'm not the advocate, He is, you know? So, um, what, what, what He was saying right there is my, my, uh, my social presence must decrease. Because as the, as the Old Western said, there's not room in this town for both of us. If you ever wonder why whenever Jesus, His ministry rises and He becomes popular and He is healing people and He's teaching and all this stuff. And then you look at what happens with John the Baptist. He's thrown in jail. He's beheaded. You ever wonder why in the world we couldn't have John the Baptist and Jesus preaching at the same time? You got to see what this represents. Flesh and spirit, Saul and David. I'm not saying that John the Baptist was evil. I'm saying that he represents that which must perish so that the spirit can thrive. You can't have both at the same time thriving. John the Baptist must decrease his 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 social influence, his social power, uh, his audience, his uh, his ability to reach the masses. Get the flesh out of the way is the point. And then when you do that, the Spirit of God, the, Jesus, is able to take his rightful place. You see? Now, the reason why I'm, I'm using that kind of as a foundation is because this is what we see in First Samuel 16. Okay? Saul, representing the flesh, representing carnal mind, carnality, my instincts, uh, you know, he's got to decrease because we can't have two kings. We can't have Saul and David uh, both reigning at the same time. It just is not gonna happen. And so uh look at chapter, look at 1 Samuel 16 and 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Remember, as you read this, I want you to I want you to kind of pair this again with Jacob and Esau. Uh, Cain and Abel, I've, I've taught many times how whenever you see that pair of two and one comes after the other, there's a reason why in Scripture the prophecy went forth to Rebekah saying there are two nations in your womb, two manner of people shall be divided from you. And he says, and the elder, the older, shall bow before the younger. The elder shall serve the younger. Okay, this is not just a unique Situation for Rebecca and her children. This is a biblical truth that Cain was the older brother, but he was the flesh, and he was supposed to submit and and get in line with that that Abel was doing. So you know, don't want to do that. So he seeks to kill. By the way, same thing we're going to see with Saul. Um, we have Esau the flesh, firstborn carnality, the instinct uh, that which needs to decrease, but he's the firstborn. He's the eldest. And then we have Jacob, the son of Promise, the one that is going to walk in the covenant, right? Well, what do you know? Whenever Jacob rises, rises to his place. Whenever he receives uh, that birthright, whenever he receives what Esau surrendered, next thing you know, what do you know? Uh, Esau flesh seeks to kill uh, Jacob. He seeks, he seeks his life. Now we're and and I could take this all the way to the New Testament. Considering that the Pharisees are first, if you're looking at what does this represent in the, in the New Testament, uh, Saul would represent the Pharisees, or the Pharisees would, rep, whatever you know, the Pharisees would represent Saul. That is that they are the ministry of flesh. They are they are the, that which needs to fade off the scale. And so whenever Jesus shows up, he's teaching things exclusively, knocking down the influence of the Pharisees, knocking down the influence of carnal ministry. You see. And what happens whenever the Spirit finally begins to take its place, whenever Jesus finally begins to emerge as this, uh, as this dominant uh, prophetic voice, uh, they, He's Messiah, He's Hosanna, as soon as He takes His place and the elder, the Pharisee, bows to the younger, what happens? Yet again, the Pharisees seek Jesus' life. You see, so over and over and over again, we see this. So this is only natural, only normal, that Saul, representing the flesh, has got to fade off the scene because we can't have two kings. You see, uh, it, it, look at what is posed whenever Paul starts to talk about in the New Testament. Um, he, sa- he says, you know, no man can serve, what? Two masters. What are the two masters? I know that he mentions mammon, but let's be real folks. He's he's talking about the desires of the flesh. That is the love of money. That is the, you know, what will will give me increase. That's really mammon doesn't refer to dollar bills and cents. It refers to fleshly increase. And so he's saying, you, you, you cannot serve two masters. You can't you can't find yourself under the rule of both Pharaoh and Moses. You can't find yourself under the rule of both Saul and of David, of the Pharisees and of Jesus. You see what I'm saying, folks? Um so so l- l- well let's if I'm not careful I'll talk New Testament the whole time. So let's let's get into let's get into this, okay? Just remember as we see Saul, I want you to remember this is carnality. This is your fleshly birth. This is uh you know, and, and once again, why we must be born again. Uh, how long will you mourn for Saul, for that flesh, for that carnality, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. This shows you just how far Saul has fallen now, considering that the prophet even, uh, the prophet is intimidated. That that's that's a whole other lesson. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. Call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint unto me him whom I name unto you. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I'm come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass. Here we go. Watch how this embodies the mindset and the spirit of the people of Israel. Okay? Like I said earlier, these stories are just an outward appearance of what's going on internally, spiritually in Israel. They say we want to be led to the flesh. And so this is the pattern that we're looking for. Verse 6, It came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab, he looked on him, flesh, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Eliab has got to be it. Because I, if you can imagine Eliab is this Adonis figure, you know, the the curly flowing locks and, you know, the... The muscles that popped out everywhere, and and uh, you know j- just the right amount of chest hair, and you know he 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 had hey, he had manicured fingernails and pedicured toenails, and you know he he no scars, and and you know he was trimmed right, and he was you know Eliab looked looked the part. He looked the part. So this is why the Lord sends a reminder to his prophet in verse 7 the lord says unto samuel look not on his countenance remember this is just a spiritual representation of what's going on or i should say a physical representation of what the of what is going on spiritually in israel external and internal don't look is outside. That's what Israel's been trying to do. They've been trying to measure success in their flesh. They've been trying to measure success by wanting that mammon, that fleshly increase. And so if you if you limit yourself to only measuring fleshly benefits, you're going to end up with an Eliab. You're going to have a replay of Saul all over again. The Lord says, "Don't look at his countenance. Don't look at the height of his stature that tells us that he was probably pretty tall because I refused him the Lord is saying hasn't Israel learned by now I gave you a chance with your tall dark and handsome fella and he burned you so what are you going to do now are you going to are you going to follow after the same type of guy that wounded you so many times before? Are you going to fall into into this trap and continue over and over and over looking for things that only edify your flesh? Don't look at his countenance, don't look at his stature because I have refused him just like I've refused Saul. I see something on the inside that you don't see the Lord says, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David wasn't as tall. David wasn't perhaps as muscular. David might not have been as rugged. David might not have been as well kept. David didn't smell as good as some others. i he smelled like sheep, he smelled like the fields, he smelled like the pastures. he sounded you know he sounded like a shepherd he he walked like a shepherd. He didn't walk like a king, but the Lord is saying, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I, I don't want somebody to rule over Israel. That's just like all the kings of this world, because that's the only measurement that you can get for a king is by looking at the king of Assyria. The only measurement that you can look at uh, for a king is to measure the king of Egypt and to measure the king uh, you know, of, of Midian and to measure the king of Moab. And it's true. David doesn't Look like that. He doesn't come across that way. He's very unassuming. He he shall have no form of comeliness that anyone should be desired of him. Are you seeing this? I'm making some scriptural connections of him right now. Uh, his, His countenance is so that no man should really desire to look upon him. Yet there's something within it all. There's something inside of him that I see. His heart. His heart looks different. His heart is towards me. His heart, his desires are towards me. I know he doesn't have it all together on the outside. I know that, you know, he, he's got some hangups on the outside, uh, but, but his heart is towards me. And as tall as Eliab is, his heart is not right. As impressive as Saul is, as impressive as Eliab is, I can't do anything with him. He's got all of the, he's got, these guys have got all of the physical attributes you could ever desire, but I can't do anything with them. You see, you, you can do a lot with a heart or you can do very little with a heart. Jesse called the other sons. He made, verse 10, he made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said unto Jesse in verse 11, are here all your children? If you look at that in the Hebrew, he actually says, not children. He says, is there anyone else that is a part of your family? Is there any other child around? Because according to Jesse, I want to give you a little bit of history here. According to Jesse, he had brought forth all of his children. You see, if you look into the history of Israel, you'll find that David had quite the scandalous birth story. This is why if you've ever, uh, if you've ever read, you know, in Psalms, let's turn there real quick. Okay. Psalm chapter, uh, oh, let's see. Psalm chapter 51, Psalm chapter 51 and verse five, David writes, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me?" I know that's that throws a lot of people off. It threw me off. I wanted to get to the bottom of that. David, how could you say that in sin your mother conceived you? Now, shaping in iniquity, that refers to your Adamic sin, right? It's, it is because I'm born of flesh. But that second half, in sin did my mother conceive me? This is, this is something beyond the, the curse of Adam. So what, what, how do, what do you do with that? What do you do with uh, Psalm 69? Let's, let's go there real quick. Psalm chapter 69. Um, let's see. Okay. Go to verse 4. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. David saying, all these people hate me for no reason. I have done nothing against them. O <coughs> oh God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O oh Lord God, of hosts be ashamed for my sake. Uh, jump to, jump to, um, oh, verse uh. Well, let's just keep reading. It's all good. Because David is talking about his childhood here. He's talking about his relationship with his brethren, with with his family. Um, uh, Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel, because for thy sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. Why would David write about him being ashamed? Let's keep reading. I am become a stranger unto my brethren, and I'm like an alien unto my mother's children. Now link this to Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. He's saying, other people did wrong. This is what he believes. Other people did wrong, and now it's falling upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. I became a saying around, you know, uh-oh, that's another David. They that sit in the gate, referring to beggars, those that sit in the gate speak against me. I was the song of the drunkards. These people are mocking me. They, You see, what David is referring to is his obscure, painful childhood. Now, this all comes back to David's mother. David's mother. You got to do some digging to get this. Okay? But David's mother was named Nitzdevet. Okay? Nitzdevet. Now, she was... The wife, of course, of Jesse. She uh, she gave birth to all of Samuel. Uh, oh, good grief, <laughs> I'm I'm about to invent a Bible scandal. <laughs> she gave birth to all of Jesse's children. All right. Now, the story goes, and if you're wondering where my what my reference is, it's the Babylonian Talmud, which is like a world history, as the Babylonians would conquer. Uh, country after country, they would gather together their records, and they would uh, they would they assimilated this all uh, into one big you know big work. And so you have the the history of Israel, you have the history of Babylon, the history of the Assyrians, the history of the Persians, and and Babylon Babylon basically gathered this this massive index of the different kingdoms that they overthrew. And so this is where I got this from. If you're wondering what my reference is, so. Niztavet. She is the wife of Jesse, uh, and, and she is the mother of all of, of David's brethren, of Jesse's first seven boys. Now, uh, Jesse carried with him a stain in his reputation, and that is because his grandmother was a woman named Ruth. Now, I know you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Remember, folks, Ruth was not an Israelite. She was not a Jew. Ruth was a Moabite. And so, uh, I don't know if you know this or not about Israel. If you didn't, now you do. That it, it's kind of two halves, two wings of the same bird, mother and father, as far as your Jewishness is concerned. Okay? Um, you are considered a Jew because of your mother. Okay? And you, are consi- and you uh, get your tribe... From your father, okay, so, so uh, you know you've got you've got you've got Jesse, who is of the tribe of Judah, right? So this is why uh, they're in Bethlehem. This is why David, you know, is he's he's rooted in you know the, that whole Judahment or the, the the whole like Judah persona, um, and 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 then we've got mom now. Jesse's grandmother, like I said, is Ruth. So what do you do whenever you've got Boaz, who is, who is a true Jew of the tribe of Judah, yet he marries a non-Jew? Well, what about Obed, right? That's Jesse's dad. What, what about Obed? Well, Obed would have been looked at as if he were really a half-Jew. He, he could hang around the tribe of Judah as a half-Jew. But everybody understood who his mama was and he carried that all, you know with him for all this time. Now Obed has a son named Jesse and Jesse then would be a quarter or, uh, a quarter Moabite, three quarters Jew, okay? Now <clears throat> that might not seem to matter much by the time that Jesse has a child and now he's an eighth Moabite and he's you know that, we're thinking, well, why does this ever even matter? Well to the Jews, Your genealogy is extremely important. It is is incredibly important. And Jesse was trying to rise through the ranks in Israel. According to their history, Jesse became a member of the Sanhedrin, the upper echelon of the Jews, uh, a high-ranking Pharisee. uh, And there's some debate as to whether he was truly a Pharisee or not, but uh, nevertheless. Now, uh, as as he's climbing through the ranks... Jesse perceives that there is still an issue with his level of Jewishness because of Grandma Ruth. Now Jesse's already had all these children before David's seven older brothers. And he's got a faithful wife in Nitzavet. However, Jesse he says, you know what? I'm I need to I need to test the waters. I need to see because Jesse's assumption is that his other boys have been accepted uh, as Jews only because uh, Nitzavet is a Jew. She's a pure Jew, and so Jesse's test is he. And the, this is in the history books. Jesse says, "I'm going to do like great 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 grandpa Abraham did, at, at whenever he slept with Hagar." Uh, you know, we, we, there's this great debate about what Ishmael was, you know, half Egyptian, half Jew. What? And, and Jesse says, I'm going to perform an experiment. I'm going to sleep with uh, Nitzavet's maid. And w- whenever she bears a child, he's going to be half me and half her. And I'm going to look at how the people accept him. And however they accept him, that's gonna be, I'll, I'll be able to know my social standing. So, he sends for Nitstavet's maid. Now she is a faithful maid, she loves Nitstavet. They There's nothing but loyalty here. And so the maid tells Nitstavet about the plans that Jesse has made to sleep with her and to you know try to make her into another Hagar. Well, the maid conspires with uh, Nitstavet I mean, this is just good drama, isn't it? They conspire together and uh, they come up with a plan that at night when the maid is supposed to go into the tent, uh, Nitzavet's actually going to sneak in the tent and Jesse unknowingly is going to sleep with his wife instead. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That's exactly what happens. Now, uh, Jesse is none the wiser. Jesse believes that he has slept with his maiden with Nitztavet's maid. And Nitztavet slips out, goes back into the night, and, you know, they wake up the next morning, there's nobody there, and and Jesse said, wow, okay, let's see what happens. Well, guess what? The maid turns out not to be pregnant. What do you know? But, Nitztavet suddenly, you know, a belly bump a baby bump appears, and next thing you know, nine months later, Nitzschevet, that Jesse believes he has he has not slept with again, bears a child named David. What what are they to think? Well, I guess Nitzschevet slept around. I guess that Nitzschevet has had an affair, and because Jesse, he's saying, I I know this is not my child. Nevertheless, this is in Jewish history. Jesse determines, nevertheless, because I love Nitztevet, I will raise him as my own. This is yet another kind of, kind of sort of preview of what Christ and Joseph's relationship is going to kind of sort of be. Uh, That, that Joseph, Joseph, (laughs) Jesse didn't think he was David's real father, but he was. Joseph knows that he's not Jesus's real father. The question is, do you believe uh, the mother whenever she says, I've not committed adultery? That's the real test. That's the real. And what what is the stigma that follows David around? I just read it to you. What and then therefore what is the stigma that's going to follow Jesus around because you know with David Uh, Nistavet swears that that she hasn't slept around, that she hasn't been with anyone else. (laughs) Okay, yeah, right. Well, you have a baby. So how are you going to explain that? Well, okay, as bad as that is, try a few generations later whenever Mary is is telling everybody that she's a virgin and, and everyone knows that she and Joseph haven't consummated their marriage and yet she becomes pregnant. What is the stigma then that Jesus is going to carry with him? You see, we have all of these you know, parallel roads, you know, that that run alongside Messiah. Now, unbeknownst to David, unbeknownst to everyone, because uh, Nistavet has determined within herself that she's not going to tell, because of what might happen to her maid, she's not going to tell what actually happened. All she can say is that, I promise I have not been unfaithful to you. Now, Jesse determines that he's going to raise this boy, but not quite as a son. This is why whenever Samuel calls and says, bring forth all of your children, that's why Jesse doesn't bring David, because in his mind, that's Nitzvah's boy, but he's not mine. And so whenever uh, whenever Samuel gets desperate and he says, are there any other children at all on your property? Jesse finally says, well, there is David. I hope this is starting to click with you. I hope this is making some sense for you. Now, as David comes forth, he is bringing with him all of the stigma of his past. He's bringing with him all of the all of the the Song of the Drunkards and and the the Proverbs of those that sit at the gate and the, you know, he he's bringing forth all of this stuff. In fact, history says that uh that David's Foggy uh, birth story is the whole reason why he's rejected of his brethren, and the whole reason why, whenever the prophet shows up, he is out in the fields. And get this, it is a literal quote in the Babylonian Talmud saying that Jesse and the brothers of David wanted to kill David and wanted to kill even Nitzavet for being unfaithful, but. Jesse stops him. He said, that's not the right thing to do. And the compromise was I will put David out in the fields. And this is a quote from the Babylonian Talmud in hopes that maybe a lion or a bear would consume him and kill him. Now we know that David does have a confrontation with the lion and the bear. This is just what happens whenever you have the anointing. There's nothing that the flesh can bring against you that can stop the anointing of God. There's nothing, there's nothing that outward influences can do to destroy your ministry. David has kept his heart right. and all this time, unsure of his origin story, unsure, all he knows is the rumors. In sin, my mother conceived me. <clears throat> I'm a stranger and an alien among my own brethren. And, and things that other people did wrong, I'm having to pay for. David is carrying all of this stuff, yet his heart is continually towards the Lord. And when it comes time for anointing, that's what the Lord looks for. Now, I wanna I wanna point you towards just one more thing, okay? Samuel says in verse 11 of 1 Samuel 16, he says to Jesse, fetch David. He says, we're not going to sit down. We're not going to do anything until David gets here. And in verse 12, it begins to describe David on the outside. It describes his carnal appearance. It says, and he sent and brought him in. Verse 12, David. Now he was ruddy. He was ruddy. That's not a word that we use commonly today, so I had to look that up. Ruddy means red. It means he's, perhaps he has red hair, Uh, maybe blushed cheeks, maybe David had freckles. But this is, is, it is the appearance of red, okay? His skin tone was red. His appearance was red. Now, why would this matter? Why? It doesn't really say he was short. It doesn't say he was chubby or super skinny. It doesn't say whether he had all of his teeth. There's a lot in his appearance that it doesn't mention, but it specifically does mention that he's ruddy, that he has a red color, a red glow. Why is this important enough to mention? Well, could it be? Could it be that in Israel, a red complexion was linked and tied all the way back to Esau? I'm saying could it be, but I'm telling you it be. Okay, this is truth. In Israel, there was a stigma associated with red complexion. And it's carried over all the way until today, whenever folks talk about gingers and all that stupid stuff. Um, This started way back in the day because Esau, the Bible says when he was born, he came out all hairy like a garment and the color of... Esau's name means red. Esau had that red hair, that red complexion, maybe freckles, but Esau emitted that redness now in Israel history Esau is connected with a troubling uh, a troubling mentality it is it is the enemy you know the the Edomites the the descendants of Esau they were those that were trouble They, they would say look out Anytime they saw somebody with red hair, or red complexion, freckles, they would say, Ooh, watch him. He's uh, he's Esau. He's trouble. He resists the covenant bloodline that we're from, the children of Israel, the children of Jacob. He's not like us. He's an outcast. And anytime that somebody would come across that was ruddy, A red appearance, a red countenance. They would discard them. So this was yet another reason for David to be a social pariah. He's out there. He's a troublemaker. You can tell because God has marked him because of what his mom did. Well, could it be that this is the whole reason why God tells Samuel in verse 7, Don't look at his countenance. Don't look at that ruddy Esau exterior. I see something that you don't see. Samuel, while you might see Esau on the outside, I see a Jacob on the inside. While you might see a reject on the outside, I see a cornerstone on the inside. While you see a shepherd boy on the outside, I see a king on the inside. While you see a weakling on the outside, I see a giant killer on the inside. While you see a a pariah, a, a misfit on the outside, I see a worshiper on the inside. And the Lord says to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance. You look at the Esau. You measure people by their countenance. You measure people by what they look like. You measure people by, what they, by, by your carnal instinct, because remember, that's the overarching theme. It is flesh and spirit. And the Lord says, I don't look at that. I don't measure him by the color of his skin. You wanna, you wanna, you wanna deal with some tough issues? Let's talk about hidden prejudice. Let's talk about hidden perceptions. Let's talk about who it is that if you see them walking past your door, you hit the lock button. you want to talk about some stuff? Let's talk about some. You see, you can't say that you're submitted to the word and submitted to the teaching as long as what I'm talking about you already agree with, but I wonder what are your hidden prejudices? And I'm not tur- I'm not turning this into just exclusively a racism type of thing, but I'm just saying, what is it that you measure people on the outside of that you need to be saying, "God give me your eyes so that I can look beneath the surface." So that I can see the soul that is buried within all of that Esau exterior? Did you know that every person that drives you crazy is a soul that Jesus spilled blood for? Every person that's at your workplace, that's in your family, that's in your household, every person that rubs you the wrong way, every person that you see, uh, you know, at Walmart and you think, oh God, who are they? Every one of those Esau's, there's a Jacob inside of them. And the Lord is saying, is there anybody that can possibly look at people the way I see them? Is there anybody willing to disregard the false reputations, the stuff that you've heard about them that's not even true? This is a perfect segue from my little miniature study yesterday regarding Achituv and and how he's the brother of Ichabod. Is there anybody willing to to disregard his name, Ichabod, for just a second and realize that, that what he has been labeled is not who he is? Somebody gave you the benefit of the doubt. People make assumptions about you. I tell you this. I tell you this. The gift of empathy, the gift of being able to see through the outward and to identify with the inward is something that we need to pursue. We will never be able to impact this world If you measure things the way that all the other nations measure them, we've got to be able to say, Lord, give me your eyes. Lord, give me your ears. Lord, let me put aside my physical senses. Let me put aside reputations. Let me put aside, uh, you know, let me, let me, let me put all of that aside. And let me see what you see. The moment that you start praying that way, the Lord will give you this beautiful gift called empathy. He'll give you this beautiful gift called compassion. He'll give you this beautiful gift, and that is that I see what is good in you. And, folks, that is how the people of God are going to get in unity. That is how the people of God are going to be able to dwell together. He said, he doesn't say they shall know you're my disciples how well you stick to my word. He says the way they're going to know you're my disciples is whenever you stop casting out anybody that doesn't fit your prescription of what they should be. The moment that the moment that you you quit being the judge uh, of, of what folks are supposed to act like and what folks are supposed to sound like and what... As soon as you take ownership of yourself and you say, I'm going to assume the best about my brother, that is whenever unity comes. Even in the midst of offense, even in the midst of wrongdoing, the people of God need to be able to look beyond the Esau, look beyond the ruddy complexion, and they need to be able to see the king inside every person. Whenever Samuel tilted that horn of oil down, and he poured out that anointing on David. That was the moment Samuel announces, this is a son of Jesse that God has anointed, and this is going to be the next king of Israel. And from that day forward, it was known through Israel that David's past was not what you think it is. I want to challenge you, as I do every day, to look inward. And I want you to take an inventory within yourself. Are there people, are there people that I have made assumptions about and it has ostracized them? I wonder, could you witness to a Democrat? I wonder, could you love an atheist? I wonder, could you, could you win the soul of a homosexual? Or are you only postured to win those who already agree with you? You've got to be able to look beyond the flesh. I love you. I pray that this Bible study has challenged you. I pray that it has, I, honestly, I pray it has convicted you. If it has blessed you, uh, share this uh, with whoever you want. Share it on Facebook. Like it. Uh, we, I'm trying to get the message out to as many people as I can. Like Subscribe, do whatever you guys do, and I pray that you're blessed. I love you all.